you for tuning into the Great Work Podcast. My name is Amanda. I'm your host. Today we are talking to my friend Charlie. But before we get into the episode, please be sure to like, comment, subscribe, rate me five stars if you think I deserve it, and share with a friend if you think they would like this. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're focusing on U.S. domestic politics, not so much domestic politics and like I'm telling you who to vote for, because I don't think it's my right or duty to tell anyone who to vote for. I'm having on my friend Charlie, who is a political consultant on the Republican side, but he is from Michigan. I am from Minneapolis. We have experience with the two, you know, most pro-Palestine leaders in the country, currently elected to Congress. So we talked about that and we talked about kind of the challenges that the Democrat Party is facing and the challenges that the Republican Party is facing. Charlie and I are both Republicans. I think we're we're, we're not preachy or proselytizing in any way, shape or form in this interview. Um, really, if, if you hate Trump, that's totally OK with me. If you like Trump, totally OK with me. Um, what I hope you can gain from this episode is kind of a lay of the land of what it's looking like with um what things are looking like on the on the ground what do republicans care about right now going into the election what do democrats care about right now going into the election um what are challenges that the biden administration is facing um things like that i think charlie did a really good job of that charlie is a political consultant if you've ever wanted to run for office or you know if anyone has wanted to run for office um He's a great resource. Um, I'm going to link all of his stuff in the description box below. You can go um, message him or check him out. He would love to help on any races or I think with just general advertising as well. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. All right. Welcome, Charlie. So guys, I know Charlie. <laughs> I know Charlie. I've known him for, I've known you for a long time, probably 2016, right? I think so. Yeah, 2016. 2016. So Charlie is a friend of mine. He was the chair of Michigan College Republicans while I was chair of Minnesota College Republicans. We were a part of an organization called the College Republican National Committee or CRNC, where all of the state chairs would get together. It's a little unfortunate that the, that's kind of defunct now. It doesn't really exist anymore. Um, after we, a couple years after we got out, I don't know what happened. Someone just kind of knew the organization. I don't really know. Um, but Charlie is now a political consultant. He goes on news programs talking about Republican and Democrat politics, and he has political clients who he advises on a key range of issues throughout their campaigns. Charlie, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, number one, thank you so much for having me on on your podcast. It's a real honor. Uh, I remember we met like back when people thought Donald Trump was crazy. And he had no chance of winning. Uh, but, you know, I think as conservatives, we were always big, big Trump people. I mean, obviously, like, I like the drama. I like the flair. I think that sells well on TV. And obviously did. I mean, he took that election by storm. Like, he was, I think he was his own worst enemy. And I, I truly believe that to this day. Like, if he could get out of his own way, he'd probably be perceived as, like, a much more likable candidate that people can get behind. Uh, but yeah, so like my, my professional background, like I've been an, an activist, I've been like in party leadership, I, I've been a staffer on campaigns and now I'm a political consultant and strategist. So like essentially what I do is, is I either work with like groups or individuals and I help them, uh, navigate the political process, whether that be a campaign, 
something to deal with public affairs, getting their issues to the forefront of politics. And uh, I mean, it is so nuanced when you're dealing with any political issue that it does take, I believe, someone who can focus on coming up with like a strategic plan to and actually be able to execute it. Um, and, and that's what I do. And, uh, I absolutely love it. So if somebody wanted to work with you, if someone was looking to run for office, can you talk about, um, the levels of office you usually help and things like that and how to contact you? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, the best way to contact me is my website, strategic-political.com. Uh, my phone number's on there, my email address. If you're on Instagram and you want to keep up with me at Charlie Colane, uh, I always check my direct messages as well. So there's two good ways there. And uh, as far as helping people run for office, I mean, like what what my team and myself do is is we'll only work with we'll work with people running for almost any position, uh, but we really want to work with people who are serious about winning. And what this means is they have the time and resources to d- dedicate to the actual election process. Because I think a lot of people, and, and I think it like a lot of people do want to run for office. They want to have their voice be heard, but they're very naive about getting into the process. And that's, to, that's totally fine. I mean, I don't think our, our country was built on, on supposed to having career politicians or anything like that. But like, I do think for, for anyone watching who's like interested in potentially running for office, it's really important that I think you have at least like two to six hours a day to dedicate to your election. You're not afraid to pick up the phone and, and call people and have uncomfortable conversations. Um, being able to finance your campaign is a huge part. You've got to be able to fundraise or at least try and attempt to. Uh, and then you, I think back in the day, and the smaller the office, the more the strategy works where you're just, you're just the nice guy that everyone knows in your hometown and you're running for dog catcher or city council or or village president or something like that. But like the bigger the office and and the more contested it is, like you really got to be able to willing to take policy stances that could be controversial because just, just like what we were talking about with Donald Trump, like, like the flair, the bomb throwing that, that gets attention and it doesn't always win, but I mean, you do need to be willing to go, go down that path sometimes. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to have all your stuff linked below if people want to follow you for just your commentary or if people want to work with you. I'm going to have that all linked. Thank so you. We'll check that out in the description. But I want to talk to you about a couple things. Um, so being a political strategist, you oftentimes um, post your like thoughts on what's going on in the race. And a couple of days ago, you were talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is most of what my audience is focused on these days. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, like, kind of the overall landscape of this issue right now? And the, I think your stories were talking about the Democrat Party. So let's, let's go there. first. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Jewish Americans, for the most part, are Democrat voters. They are donors. Uh, I would say, like, Muslim Americans, it's, they are not affiliated with a party yet. And like many people, I would say in the industry would not categorize them in one camp or the other. Uh, so what we're looking at is two camps of people who want, one is a voting base for one party, one's unclaimed. And both, I think, and from my conversations with people in both communities, are very upset 
with Joe Biden's handling of the Middle East. And I think if if there was a more decisive action coming out of the White House or the U.S. government with with what's happening in Israel with like and it, I think it truly does take executive level attention. And that would be more press conferences. That would be more photo ops. I mean, I we are doing a lot of stuff for Israel with with sending weapons, coordinating with the military, moving an aircraft carrier into the Mediterranean. But realistically, the photo ops in the politics is not matching the equipment that's being moved around. And and it's really going to cost the Democrats in the in the upcoming election. Um, and what what we saw. So there was this poll that came out in Michigan and Michigan's a swing state. I, I truly believe it's in play for the for the presidency, especially if Trump's on the ticket. Uh, he's 10 points up above Joe Biden. And when you talk about the Middle Eastern community with the two groups that I just listed, uh, they have a heavy concentration in Metro Detroit, in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, we saw the Muslim community come out very heavy in local school board elections in Dearborn and actually flip them because they were sick of like the wokeisms happening in school. And I think anyone who has a stake in the Middle East who's ever visited it, who's been there, who follows it, the response coming out of the United States is not, is nothing. I mean, it's like, hey, let's let's sit on our hands. We'll we'll move our military equipment around, but we're not going to have any like moral direction or compass kind of telling the American people what to think and feel or the world what we're going to do. And I think with that vacuum of leadership, like it really is going to cost the Democrats in this upcoming election. Okay, that's that's really interesting because I I a lot of my audience is historically Democrats, which is yeah. funny that they follow me. I, I would say I present myself pretty moderately and I've, I'm pretty moderate, I guess now. But um, it's interesting because many of them have turned on Joe Biden saying that he's not doing enough. They would not feel safe with the Joe Biden as president because of the not just what's going on in the Middle East, but the anti-Semitism rise here and how the administration is putting Kamala on the Islamophobia task force, which I don't know if it's an insult or a good thing because she is the most incompetent member of this <laughs> this administration by far. Well, I mean, Kamala's protecting the border and now she's in charge of Islamophobia. So I think a lot of stuff's going to get solved very quickly. <laughs> so we've got that going on. And then it, it's kind of weird in every story you read, um, Joe Biden is backing up Israel to a degree with what you said, with munition sales, with moving the aircraft carrier. But that's always buried in the lead. I mean, I don't think anyone in the administration like Joe Biden has come out yet and said, we are trying to wrap up this war. But then he'll say something like indiscriminate bombing. And it's like, that's not happening. He just doesn't seem to have a story straight, but that's a lot of things. With the Republican Party, is this a pickup opportunity for the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, I think like, so number one, all the candidates I work with, if they're running for U.S. Congress or something to deal with the federal government, the number one thing donors currently want to talk about is foreign affairs and Israel. If someone has any experience in the Middle East, if they've been to the Middle East, what they think about what's going on, if they have some personal connection, that's the number one story that that people want to speak about and that's selling uh, politically. Uh, so like, I think the appetite is there with donors. Uh, number two, I think it is a pickup opportunity. 
Uh, and the best way I think the Republicans can realistically play this to get voters is to give people a sense of security, what they would do if they were in charge. And I mean, if they could provide stability in the Middle East, if they could provide like a good mouthpiece or talking points on what actually is being done and what we're going to do to like secure the situation over there. And then finally, like if, if there can be some realistic steps to be taken to having, uh, to solving the Israeli Palestinian conflict. And if that's a two state solution, I think, uh, Republicans need to be able to actually say how they're going to get there. Awesome. So two places I want to go there with that. Um, Donors concerned about the Middle East. APAC talked about all the time as this lobbying firm with outsized political influence. You and I have both been affiliated with APAC. Can you talk about, from your clients, is APAC, how does APAC work with the rest of like political donors? Are they um, the most prized endorsement you can get or something like that? Like, Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I got involved with APAC when I was uh, a student at Michigan State and I was a campus activist. I went on their student leader trip to Israel in 2016, shortly before the election. And uh, I think they used to have a big policy conference where they would take like all their stakeholders to DC once a year. And I think I attended like two or three of those. Uh, so like, I'm, I'm very familiar with APAC. And a lot of the clients that I'm dealing with are either in Republican on Republican races or Republican on Democrat races. Uh, thankfully, for the most part, supporting Israel is a bipartisan issue. So in a Republican on Republican race, I would say it's more playing out in, in the fundraising aspect of things where it's like if we have someone who has been in the military and has been to the Middle East, like donors genuinely do you find the conversation very enjoyable to hear about their experience over there? Uh, and I mean, that conversation has played out over and over again on a one-by-one -one basis when we're speaking to people about helping us with our campaign. Uh, I would say in the Republican on Democrat race, it's like the Democrats to a certain degree are tied on what they can say their strategy is in the Middle East because they do have to be team players. They do have to support Joe Biden. Uh, but realistically, what can what can they say? Yeah, we're moving an aircraft carrier into the Middle East. We're doing munition sales. We're really going to try and combat Iran while, while Yemen is bombing cargo ships in, in the Red Sea and effectively shut the entire thing down. Uh, so, like, in I think it's going to play out more this summer. I think it really depends on how the conflict goes and if it does get more media attention. Uh, because, sadly, you know, there was a lot of media attention with the initial attack. Uh, by Hamas, and then I think there was a lot of stuff following up to the uh, to the invasion of Gaza. But right now, I would say, as far as new news being generated, there's not there's not a ton of other new news currently coming out, and we're right on the verge of the Iowa caucus, and I really think that's going to take up a lot of a lot of steam. APEC, though, from what I've been hearing, uh, it's in Democrat on Democrat primaries. Uh, and this is not, this is nothing firsthand that I've ever been involved in. Uh, but as far as making sure we have pro Israel Democrats winning primaries, uh, because there is a movement in the progressive left to side with Palestinians, to side with Hamas. And, and we're seeing that play out on social media, number one, 
Uh, and then number two, I think you see uh, you see representatives like Rashid Tlaib, Ilian Omar, who are actively taking their side. Uh, and I just think it's like those are going to be the targets for a big national group like APAC. And their biggest challenge, I would say, is not going to be on the fundraising aspect. It's going to be on actually finding quality candidates who can win in those districts because uh, they're both two very unique areas. Mm-hmm. Totally. Two unique areas that we're both familiar with. Um, yeah, and so- let's just talk about the areas. So, I mean, like, Rashid, Rashid Tlaib, Dearborn, Michigan, huge, huge Muslim population. Uh, so how do you find someone who can go into that district and beat her in a community she's consistently won? And she didn't come out of the blue. I mean, she was a community activist before she got elected to Congress. So she's a well-known name brand over there. Uh, And it's like, it's going to take more than just money to win the fight. Uh, And then I would say like, Ilian Omar, I'm so I'm from Michigan. So that's like kind of how I can speak about that area very well. I'm personally not from Minnesota, but uh, where Ilian Omar is from, uh, Minnesota, that area is heavily Somali. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she she's from the community. She's she's well known. She has a name there. So that's the other thing, too, where it's like even if an outside group comes in and says they're going to shower a bunch of resources on some candidate who's going to challenge them. Well, like time's ticking. It, it's deaf in Michigan. The primaries in August. So it's like, OK, you have eight and a half months right now to find someone and run a serious campaign. Can you do that? I don't know. I'm very doubtful. Uh, why haven't they done it before? Uh, because they haven't been able to find anyone. And I'd say same thing with Ilian Omar. Like, this is a woman who openly attacked APAC, uh, who I think said some some people did something referring to 9-11. Yeah. And, and, but they can't find anyone to challenge her. And that's where the resources need to be invested, not like not saying, oh, we've bundled a ton of money and then have said bad candidate go out there and waste it. Yeah. Well, it's funny. The last election, the last primary primary Ilhan only won by one percentage point because she because people have said because of the um, Jewish community because her congressional district is the most heavily Jewish district in the state of Minnesota but Mm -hmm. also the most heavily Somalian district and she lost by like one percentage point that's because the district shifted and picked up other areas and stuff but she if Republicans had crossed over and voted for the other guy, she would have lost, but we couldn't because we had one loser running in the, for like yeah. general or something. So in the primary, so thank you to him. He's just, <laughs> that's the thorn in the side of Minnesota politics. But um, so for APAC, when we talk about these special interest groups, obviously a big part of your job is fundraising. Um, every just the most basic thing of this is it takes money to run a campaign and that's not a bad thing we're a capitalist country it takes money to run campaigns everyone there's certain limitations based on how much you can raise from each group apac basically can give that set amount of money i don't know what it is now because i think it went up with inflation right that you can raise per cycle yeah so the individual donor rate went up and i mean i would say how how most interest groups uh, will raise money is, is they'll find a candidate that they like, and then they'll tell their donors who want to be politically active to say, "Hey, you should max out to this candidate. We vetted them," and and then sometimes they'll start like a pack or a super pack 
and, and say, hey, you can also put money in here. Like we're managing it. We're going to make sure it's not wasted and we're going to spend it to get this person across the finish line. So that's that's kind of how they get how they get involved in any elections. And they used to not do anything politically. Mm-hmm. Like they, they used to not get involved in elections with an outside expenditure or anything, apparently. Uh, but I think after after the Iran deal passed, I think, and COVID hit, they're like, well, it doesn't make sense to have this big policy conference if, if we can't have people come into the city, uh, into D.C. And then I think when the Iran deal passed, too, it's like, well, we really have to reevaluate our strategy on how to be influential. Because, I mean, that was the number one policy priority for them. And, and obviously, they were not able to stop that. Right. Right. Well, and that, that's kind of my problem when people say that APAC has this outsized influence in American politics. If they did, the Iran deal would be a non-starter. And the Iran deal obviously gave Iran a path towards a nuclear weapon, which is its stated goal is to end Israel and then come for the West. So yes. I would think it's just kind of obvious that we don't want them to have a nuclear weapon, but that is not obvious to certain members of the Biden administration um, and the Obama administration, because they had a lot of the same staffers. That was APAC's, like you said, their number one goal. They couldn't achieve it. So obviously APAC is not this like huge boogeyman that gets everything they want and runs the U.S. political system if they can't achieve their top policy position. And even, you know, Trump repealed the the Iran deal and then Biden's administration started working on it again. So it's not like it was just a done deal either once that was taken away. With your personal... So I completely agree with that, where I think like a lot of people think, oh, this organization, whether it's APEC, the NRA, uh, AARP, any of these trade associations, oh, they're so powerful, you can't get anything through, massive donors, this guy controls everything. Like there are so many variables in the political system with passing legislation, with getting elected, with staying at the forefront of stuff that there's, you know... one like money alone isn't going to solve it. It's going to take, take like money, talent, timing, uh, and and a lot of different people as well. Because it, it's it's one of these things too. Like I, I'll speak to people about you know at least the business of politics and being a political consultant. Like I, I truly believe there's never going to be a Jeff Bezos of political consulting where everyone's going to this guy to do everything for him. Uh, I mean, it's very fragmented. There's a lot of nuanced jobs to it. And, and like, I have yet to meet someone who can do absolutely everything. And even when you talk about like the big firms in the business, like they could be involved in a lot of stuff, but eventually they turn in, I would say from like a firm driven by like policy beliefs and everything to just another advertising firm that ends up doing some political stuff. Um, so like, but back to the point of like trade associations and APAC. I think they have influence. I mean, I think they can get in front of legislators. They can speak with them. They can make their case. But like, they really have had to reevaluate their strategy with the Iran deal passing. I think they had a lot of friendlies uh, in the White House with Trump, especially in national security circles. But like, that's obviously not the case with Biden. And they're they're losing the PR battle in U.S. media and world media when you speak about like the Israeli Hamas war going on right now. Right. Totally. 
your personal experience with APAC. You went on an APAC trip, like you said. I went on one. It was bipartisan. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I think that's an interesting topic of conversation. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, my my trip consisted of, like, campus leaders. So, people who are young and involved in politics. I would say it was, like, one-third Republicans, two-thirds Democrats. Uh, I was also very involved in their, like, stu- student activist movements. Uh, and they would have this conference called Saban. And I think I went to that two or three times. Uh their biggest thing you could tell is, is they're a very far, uh, like far-sighted organization. They're thinking about the future. How do they protect this issue? They know that their biggest threat is is Israel becoming a uh, a, a one-party issue. So if only Republicans support them and Democrats don't like them, so they're thinking like, how do we keep this bipartisan? And their biggest threat is the progressive left. I mean, you would see APEC invest substantially more dollars, at least in their campus program to recruiting uh, like Democrats and leftists on campus to educate them on the issue and to try and make them pro-Israel. And I think with the people they did touch, they were successful. Like the the trip to Israel, I mean, you got a good feel for the entire country, the political and economic struggles that these, these people deal with. I think uh, all like the educational seminars they would have in the United States, like those were always well run you'd hear from experts uh i remember they had like the uh the guy who was in charge the general in charge of like israeli military intelligence speak to us and he showed up and had like a bodyguard on stage the entire time in a trench coat and i thought that was like the coolest thing i've ever seen (laughs) uh but uh yeah i think they know their biggest threat is the progressive left and they were doing a lot of work to try and get those people on board but like you're never going to see a return till 20 years till these people actually start running for office. or they're like a key advisor to certain people. And I don't know. I don't think they're winning that fight. I, I truly think the progressive left has totally sided with, uh, with Palestinians, uh, with Hamas. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong, I think, siding with Palestinians. But when I, when I reference that, I do truly mean like, Hamas saying, oh, these people, like, they have the right to self-determination to what? Destroy all of Gaza? Like, no, to cause a humanitarian crisis and then go commit terrorism? Like, no, no way. Uh, So I I just think it's like, but APEC has fallen short. They've not been able to educate the far far left on that. You know, I think, like, the wokeism stuff has taken over as well where like i think it was very smart that who's ever doing the pr propaganda for hamas for 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 those people like they really painted those uh everyone in gaza as oppressed and for the most part i think the average person is very oppressed there uh but it just so happens like they have a ruling government there that was that was elected uh that is absolutely just wreaking havoc in the region and and quite frankly they would do it around the world if they had more resources totally totally well yeah i the one thing that i think these people don't understand is like they're just getting involved in the conflict now and they see like oh oppressed people people we perceive as white we're going to choose oppressed what they don't understand is the palestinians have been losing this fight for about 75 years because they yeah. put all their faith in a governing body that puts all of their sights on total annihilation of Israel, which just isn't going to happen, rather than setting up a, a nice society for them there. And every 20 years, it just gets worse for them. 
you know, with this self-determination mm-hmm. attitude that they have. Because again, the self-determination really only has to do with annihilating Israel. They've not been able to win at that on a large scale. They never will be able to. So I wonder if the progressives in this country know that they're backing a losing side or if they care, because it sounds like, sorry, it sounds like they've already moved on to their next topic. That, like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think they care if they're backing winners or losers. <laughs> I think they care about how they feel about who they're backing and like the controversy of the day and the oppressed people of the day were the, were the Hamas sympathizers. And that, that's, why, that's why they're behind them. Uh, <coughs> so that, that's, that's my thoughts on, on why they got behind them and why it could be a very fleeting issue as well. Yeah, totally. Well, so next election cycle, I guess a lot can happen between there, but do you think this will be a forefront of most voters' minds or do, do you think other things will take over? Yeah, I think this will be one of the three main topics. I mean, we're looking at the border, public education, Israel, maybe throwing inflation. I don't think inflation's going to be top top issue anymore. Oh, really? Uh, but I, I truly think, like, when you look at those three issues, the border, education, foreign affairs, Israel, like, that's what's going to dominate what's going on right now. Because I think the conflict's only going to get worse. The madness you see in public education is is here to stay, and there's no real easy solution to fix it. Uh, and then I think the border, like I saw a report, I think this was yesterday, there was almost 9,000 people uh, apprehended at the border or in contact with Border Patrol agents. Imagine how many people got through and were not caught or were not contacted. And now I guess if you get caught, they just let you in anyways. So... I mean, I, I think those three things are going to dominate the election. And ho- hopefully, if Donald Trump's the candidate, hopefully he can speak about that stuff in not too much of a bombastic way where he gets people's attention. But they're like, okay, yeah, this guy's realistic and he's not racist. Uh, but, you know, if if he shoots himself in the foot and Joe Biden goes to Wilmington, Delaware and spends nine months in his basement, we could see a repeat. That'd be the worst, that'd be the worst thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of sad how likely that is at this point. Um, I guess any weird predictions, do you think the Democrats are going to drop Biden? You know, I used to think the Democrats were had a really strong chance of dropping Joe Biden. At, <coughs> excuse me. I put it at like 35% chance. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen. Like realistically, to get someone else on the ballot, someone's name to appear on the ballot in other states, it would be such a heavy lift to happen so quickly. Like, I think like anyone in politics, they obviously love, they love the game. They love the scheming. They love the what ifs, the last minute surprises. But like, this is not a student council election where someone can drop out one day and then a new kid enters stage right. And then they print the ballots the morning of and kids go vote. Like there, there's a lot of rules and laws with elections and just the process of appearing on all the ballots in all these states, like, I, I don't think, I don't see it happening. And I, I realistically think, too, if, if a Michelle Obama, if an Oprah, if a Susan Rice, if a, a Gavin Newsom was trying to take over Joe, Joe Biden's role as the nominee, <coughs> excuse me, I, uh, if they were trying to take over his role as a nominee, they would have some surrogates 
within the Democratic Party, like totally just trying to tarnish his name right now or calling into question. And there, there is no organized effort to do that. Okay, awesome. Well, I think I think we got a lot of good stuff here. I hope this episode acts as a really good, like, political. I I hope for my audience listening, what this does is it helps you have a conversation not about like I want Trump to win or I want Biden to win, but like really looking at the landscape of like this is what Biden needs to do, this is what Trump needs to do, this is the issues that other people are seeing. So thank you again, Charlie. All of your stuff is going to be linked below. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, I really appreciate you having me on, and, and sorry I had these coughing fits near the end. <laughs> That's okay. That that happens. You have a good day. Or I'm, I'll stop recording. Right. So thank you again, Charlie, for coming on the Great Work Podcast. Um, I I think that that conversation went well. Again, I'm not trying to tell you you have to vote for Trump. You have to vote for Biden. You have to do any of these things. Um, Biden's terrible. Trump's terrible. I have my issues. But, you know, um, I, I just wanted to give you a little feel for why we like why we're at where we're at with the American political system today. Is this election going to matter in six months? Things like that. Um, that's that's the reason for this episode. One thing we didn't get into really quickly. Um, one thing we did not get into is that I we didn't talk about the right and the left in their general opinions towards Republicans and Democrats. So why they identify with one party. So really quick, I'm going to explain that. And then I'm going to let you get on with your day. Um, Republicans historically were not the supportive party of Israel, although today they are much more supportive. Democrats historically were much more supportive of um, Israel and the state of Israel. Historically, Democrats are um, Jews historically voted with Democrats. Um, the whole, like, Jews were discriminated against in a lot of society, like country clubs and things like that, up until, like, the 80s, which is crazy to me. I can't believe that. And people used to associate that kind of country clubby type crowd with waspy, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant Republicans. So that that was that issue. Evangelicals, who are now overwhelmingly Republican, have always been very pro-Israel because of their religious beliefs that, you know, the temple needs to be rebuilt and Jews need to be living in the land of Israel in order for Jesus to to come back. So today with the Democrats, we are just seeing really this far left that Charlie kind of talked about. Um, their political beliefs are more in line with who they deem an oppressor and oppressed and taking the side of the oppressed rather than um, backing allies that agree with us on a on a global scale. And that's the reason I believe we are seeing Republicans shift into the heavily um, in, into the heavily pro-Israel side and the progressives not really getting there, um, even though if. If if Hamas were to keep charge of Israel and, God forbid, get more power, even though they would annihilate the entire country of Israel tomorrow if they had the chance, that apparently does not mean that Israel's oppressed. I don't really know. I don't really understand the logic. It, it, to me, it's not. It doesn't follow logic soundly, this, like, woke left um, type of thing. But with Republicans, Republicans 
I would say overwhelmingly identify with their political with like their national identity of being an American, whereas people on the progressive left, not the entire left, typically do not identify as an American first, but instead whatever religious or ethnic group they belong to first. And it is much more trendy to hate America or hate the West or bring up your qualms with the West, not always understanding that it is a privilege to be able to speak this openly against our government in the West. So that's, I, I didn't get to explain that, that side of things. Why do Democrats typically, why were they typically, um, or why were Jews typically Democrats? Why have they moved to right? And I should note as well now, most Orthodox Jews are Republicans. So conservative and Reformed Jews, which is most Jews, um, tend to be Democrats. But Orthodox Jews and the many different types of Orthodox Jews are typically today Republicans. So if you, I don't think it works anymore to call Jews like um, solely in one camp anymore. I think that it's, you know, that it just is what it is. But um, those are kind of my thoughts on that. So again, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope this helps you have a conversation with people about or just help you think about, okay, what is this? What is what's going on in Israel mean for the next election? How are candidates feeling about this? Um, so I, I really hope you guys have a great day. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great rest of your day.